The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Continuing our journey through the book of Colossians, and this morning we'll be looking in Colossians chapter 1, verses, uh, we'll be focusing really on verses 15 through 20, but we're going to actually start reading in verse 13 uh, to kind of get the background, the context of this passage. So uh, let's begin by uh, turning to the scripture and reading uh, first, uh, from Colossians 1, uh, 13 through 20. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, This uh, passage is likely, uh, well, it's written, put it this way, it's written in Greek in in the form of a poem. Uh, There's a lot of speculation if this was an already existing hymn that the church was familiar with, or if it was a Jewish hymn that Paul uh, adapted and rewrote to make it more Christian. Uh, We don't know, uh, but we do know it's poetic. And the second thing we know is that it is uh, supremely about Jesus. And uh, uh, because it's poetic, it's it's got some kind of hard language, and I have agonized preparing this sermon. You should know that. It's a a wonderful passage, but it's, uh, it's a little tricky to unpack, but we will try. Uh, and the point, the point is really that Jesus is everything in the Christian faith. Je- Jesus is everything in the Christian faith. Who he is and how we think about him uh, from the very beginning is, is crucial, right? Uh, and unfortunately, uh, there's a lot of ways we can go wrong when we think about Jesus. And from the very beginning of the church, even before Paul wrote this uh, letter to the Colossians, uh, actually even when Jesus was uh, on earth and teaching and, and uh, preaching and doing miracles, um, people could have wrong ideas about Jesus. And having the wrong ideas about Jesus is, is fatal. Right? It is fatal. It's extremely important that we understand rightly who Jesus is I not only understand rightly, but that we have the highest possible image and vision of him. Uh, I, I guarantee that it, when it comes down to it, every problem in our life, and actually I think every problem in the world, 
comes down to this one truth of failing to adequately and rightly understand who Jesus is. It's everything. It's everything. So it's super important that we get it right. And from the very beginning, the church has kind of gone wrong in one of at least three ways, probably more, but the three main ones that have tripped up people over the ages are these three. First is the failure to grasp that Jesus was God, right? To see him only as a human, as a a nice, good moral teacher, right? Uh, To see him only as human uh, was the first fatal mistake that people could make. And that was true of the religious leaders, and that's why they could kill him, because they saw him only as a man and not as God. Uh, The second problem, though, is to fail to grasp that Jesus was, in fact, human, Right, that is also a problem, and the early church wrestled with this one, where they, they, they said, well, yeah, he's a divine spirit, but he wasn't really in human flesh and blood. That is also a, a major flaw and error that we, 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 uh, we must avoid. Uh, the third error uh, is to see that, yes, Jesus is the God-man. He's fully God and fully human, <clears throat> but, but the, it's the failure to grasp that he is one God, but that the Son is not the Father. Okay, that he's one God. Uh, we're not worshiping three gods, Jesus and God the Father, not separate gods, there's one, one God. But that Jesus, the Son, was not the Father. They are distinguished as separate persons in, in the Trinity, in, the, in who God is. Right? And so throughout history, the church has messed this up. And uh, I think in the modern era, uh, the, the sad reality is, is not that we have messed it up so much as we've just ignored it. Right? People just don't think seriously enough about the relevance and importance of these truths. Um, and, and I think for us, uh, probably the, the temptation is that we read about Jesus in the Gospels, and it's, it's probably easy for us to identify with his humanity. And it's easy for one, because we're human, right? Uh, it's much easier to identify with one of you than it is with a dog, now, there are some people who identify better with the dog than with people. Okay, there are those people out there, right? But for most of us, we can identify with humans because we are, right? We can relate to what human beings experience and deal with. And so, um, as we read through the Gospels and we read through Jesus' life, uh, we, uh, we can picture what it was like for him to be human. And so we can identify with that. And it's probably not that we don't uh, acknowledge, we don't say, we don't believe that he's God also, but it's just hard to wrap our minds around that, right? It's hard for us. It's like, well, <clears throat> yeah, he was, he was a human being. He came to earth. He was born to the Virgin Mary. He, he did eventually go to the cross and die. He had a body. We get that. But how was he also God? <clears throat> uh, that's harder for us to grasp. And it's not that we don't want to believe it or that we like uh, heresies in the past are uh, rejecting that truth. But it's easy to just, I think, neglect it, right? To, to, to let Jesus be far too human and not, not enough God. And, in, and how that gets worked out in everyday life is he becomes just a buddy. He becomes just one of us, right? Uh, there's nothing extraordinary or spectacular about Jesus. And we can make him far too commonplace and average, and to do that is to fail to, to, to grasp the fullness and the full extent in which Jesus is also God. And what that requires of us <clears throat> in the way we live and how we relate to him. 
uh, praise God that Jesus uh, tells us that, uh, that he is our friend, right? And that is a, a wonderful gift. But he is so much more, right? And so we have to keep these pieces together. We have to uh, uh, wrap our minds fully <coughs> around who Jesus is. Um, and I think even uh, perhaps a, a, a greater problem in, in the modern church in, in our modern world is for Christians to think that these are just problems theologians and philosophers wrestle with. Like this whole, like, like they use these really big words like incarnation and hypostasis and all these big words and it's just the realm of theologians and um, we just don't have time or mental energy or brain power to, to wrestle with that because it really can't possibly be that important. But I think that is also a huge mistake, Right? And I think our whole faith, our whole walk with Christ, our whole existence in the world uh, is diminished and is, uh, is, is off if Jesus is not fully and uh, completely in our minds and hearts who he truly is in heaven. Uh, and I get it. As I was wrestling with this passage, I mean, it hurt my brain. I think I have still bruises from trying to wrap my head around these concepts of how Jesus could be man and God, how the Trinity can be one God in three persons. That hurts our brain, right? And there's a sense in which we probably can, will never, maybe not even in eternity, never fully and completely understand these truths, right? And so I'm not saying this morning that I've figured this all out and I'm going to tell you what all the answers are. I haven't, right? I haven't completely grasped what it means for, for who Jesus is. But, but the task for us is not to understand it completely, but it is to make sure we understand it correctly. Okay? Where we may not be able to plunge the depths of who Jesus is, it is super important that at least what we do understand about him, we understand correctly. That it lines up with the truth about who he is. Right? So, so let's look at this, uh, this poem of Paul's, this hymn, and, and help us... Uh, Align how we think about Jesus, who he is, and what he is to us. Um, and, and basically, Paul breaks this down in two big pieces. Uh, one, he talks about uh, Jesus in relationship to creation. And then he uh, talks about him in, in relation to redemption. But I'm actually going to take and add one more category. And I'm going to look this morning at how Jesus relates in really three ways. One, who Jesus is in relation to God. Then we're going to look at who he is in relation to creation. And then finally, who he is in relation to the church. Okay? And each of these tell us something important and necessary about who Jesus is. So first, who is Jesus in relation to God? By far the most important question. And it's really where Paul starts off. He says, first off in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. The visible image of the invisible God. And uh, there's a lot in that statement. First off, it tells us something about God. Uh, God is not visible. God is not up in heaven in a body. God is not a man like us. He is, he is nothing like us. He is spirit being. right? And this is where my brain starts to just melt down. Because I really can't conceive or picture or imagine something that's invisible that's still a being or a person. right? Now I, can, I can kind of conceptualize gravity, right? 
because gravity is a force. It's something out there that's invisible, and we, uh, we interact with it every day. You're glued to your chair this, right now, not only because of my riveting preaching, uh, but also because of gravity. It's got you stuck there, right? Now, some of you can defy gravity and stand up, and we could walk out, but, but you can't fly, right? Uh, so that's a force. That's something we, I can kind of wrap my, 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 my brain around. But uh, the God is, a, is invisible, but he's more than just a force, right? He's not just gravity. He's not just some kind of cosmic force out there. He is a being. He's got personality and will and thoughts and a mind and a heart. He is being every much as we are and even more so. And yet he's invisible. He's spirit being. And so when I pray, you know, I, I try to pray, I, I think of God sitting on his throne and, you know, it's hard, right? It's a lot easier to, to think about Jesus, right? And that's because Jesus is the image of this invisible God. He is the revelation in a real physical body of who God is. So when Jesus came and was born on earth, he became the visible representation of God. Um, and that means that, uh, uh, that, that he has in himself the perfect nature and being, and being of God revealed. It's stamped upon him. And an image is, is in a sense, it's a, it's a stamp or a, an imprint of something that shows it what it is, right? Um, and and uh, John affirms this in John 1.18. He says, No one has ever seen God, uh, the only God who is at the... Uh, but, but the only God, that is Jesus, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Right? So Jesus is the revelation of God in his character, in his being, in his nature. Uh, everything that God is, Jesus is, revealing this invisible God to us. Um, so Jesus the man was, was a perfect, complete picture or image of what God is like in his character, nature, and being, right? and, and what he is like. Now, of course, as spirit being, God is, can be everywhere present. Jesus was contained to a body. Uh, so uh, we'll talk a minute about Jesus' humanity. But, but, but he was fully God. Right? He was fully God. Um, uh, and he can reveal uh, what Jesus is like to us. So scripture is important for us in understanding who God is. But even more important than the Bible is what the Bible records about Jesus you want to know what God is like and who he is, uh, you study Jesus because he is the image, the representation, the manifestation of who this invisible God is. Um, and, and he is the perfect revelation of God for a very important reason. It says in verse 19 that for in him that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Okay, in Jesus, that is in, in, the, in Jesus the uh, the babe born in a manger and grown up to be Jesus in the flesh, right? In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And this also kind of tells us a couple of things. First of all, that, um, that Jesus was something that God could dwell in, right? In some sense, Jesus was an empty container that the character and nature of God could fill. And that empty container, as it were, is his physical body, Right, so this is where the other part of the formula comes in. Jesus wasn't just God, but he was human. He was a man. He had a real life body. He was born to a Virgin Mary. Uh, he was 100% flesh and blood. He was not a phantom, an image. He wasn't a hologram. Right? He, wasn't, he, was, he was a real person, absolutely 100%. Uh, 
Uh, and he had a fully human nature like us in every way, except for his nature was not sinful or fallen. Right? So he was perfect humanity uh, without sin. Okay, perfect humanity without sin. Uh, a full and complete human nature. So uh, scripture tells us that he could be tempted in every way as we are. Right? He was not he was not bulletproof to the temptations of sin. And he struggled with things. Right? He was tempted to sin. And of course the theologians can wrestle with was it possible for him to sin or not or was it possible for him not to sin? Um, we're not going to go into that this morning. But the point is he was fully human. In every way he had a nature just like ours. But this nature was filled up with the very fullness or completeness of God. Okay, the fullness of God. Uh, not just some of God or just part of God, but the whole of God dwelled in, lived in, resided in Jesus, in his physical human body. Uh, and so he lived um, uh, uh, this life uh, full with the very nature of God. So theologians talk about it this way. They say that he was fully God and Jesus was fully man. Right? So he wasn't kind of half and half. He wasn't like one part man and another part God that together made like a whole person. It was fully human, 100% human nature, and at the same time had absolutely 100% divine or God nature. And what's important to see is that his divine nature didn't erase his human nature. Right? And that's good news for us because we are filled with the Holy Spirit as well. And God's Spirit coming in us does not erase our human nature, right? But it empowers it. It fulfills it. It makes it completely what it was intended to be. Uh, At the same time, uh, his human nature does not shrink or diminish in any way his divine nature. He's fully both. Completely God, completely man. Um, And these two natures live together. They coexisted in perfect harmony in the person of Jesus. Uh, everybody got that? You understand that fully and completely? I don't, okay? If you got your head wrapped around that one, you, you can talk to me after and explain it to me because I'm still wrestling with this one, right? I don't get how that works, honestly. It's hard for me to, in my small, tiny brain, to, to grasp that completely. But we need to understand it correctly, right? We need to understand it correctly. We need to affirm that Jesus was 100% human, 100% God, living in this body, uh, this person called Jesus. Um, um, and that's, that's who he was in relation to God, right? So he was, he was God. And he was in relation to God as the son to a father. Second thing we see is Jesus in relation to creation, to what was made, right? Uh, And it says in verse 15, uh, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So he is the firstborn of everything that was created or made. Um, And and so this talks about Jesus in his relationship to all the universe, all that exists within the universe, but also, as we will see, everything that exists that was created outside the universe. So this universe is not all there is. There is something else outside, different, separate from this material created universe. But that outside thing, whatever, however you want to conceive it, that, that thing in the heavens is also created. Right? God also made stuff in the heavens. 
Uh, and what we see is that Jesus is described as the firstborn of creation. Now, I think this is an unfortunate term. When I get to heaven, I'm going to have a little meeting with Paul, and I'm going to say, Paul, I think you use a really poor word here. Because for most of us, when we think of firstborn, we think of something that is born first. <laughs> right? That's just how my brain works. I'm, I'm simple that way, right? Uh, firstborn means somebody who was born. And uh, that's caused a lot of confusion. It actually kind of tripped things up in the early church in one of the very early heresies. Uh, where a guy named Arian believed that Jesus was actually the first created being. That God actually created Jesus. And he was born before anything else. And then, and then Jesus created stuff. But that's clearly not what Paul means by this word. Uh, and we see that in Scripture. Uh, well, the reason we know that is because in verse 17 he said, he said, he is before all things. So before anything was created, Jesus already existed. Right? So he is not created. He is not born. Um, uh, and, and he also says, by the way, that everything created was made in and through him. Right? He is the source of everything. Uh, so he clearly was not born uh, as God, as one who has God's nature. He must be eternal. Uh, eternally pre-existent before anything was made in heaven or on earth. Right? But in Scripture, firstborn can also indicate uh, not just uh, birth order, but, but rank or importance. Right? So if something is firstborn, it means they're, they're of first rank and first importance. And so God calls actually Israel his firstborn. And that's not because Israel was the first nation that was ever existed. Right? It came, we know it came far after the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians and a bunch of others, the Chaldeans. Right? It was not the firstborn nation. But in God's eyes, it's firstborn because it is first in status and in rank. Uh, as far as God was concerned, when he looked at the nations, Israel was the most important. Right? Uh, not that he didn't love the others, but uh, Israel was first in rank and in priority. Hence, he uses the title firstborn. And the same is true of Jesus. It means that he is first in rank and importance, first in priority. Right? He's above everything that's created. So the, the, this creates the question, why did Paul, and that's why I'm going to have this conversation in heaven, Paul, why did you use this term, firstborn? Why didn't you just say he's the most important? Right? If that's what it means, why didn't you just say he's first in rank and importance? Don't confuse us with bad words, right? But I think Paul would answer. I think he has an answer for this, actually. I think, I think there's a reason he used the word firstborn. And, and, and here's the reason. My, and I, you can confirm this when you get to heaven and you talk to Paul. You can say, was Tim right on this one? You can check it out. Right? But um, this is my theory. Uh, it's a good word because it, it indicates first, among, first in rank among, uh, among the children... But it doesn't mean the first of everything, right? It, it implies that there's one even above. So first over everything, but not, but not ultimately first, right? So I'm the firstborn child in my family. It means I came first and am most important among all my siblings. They may not agree with you, uh, me on that one, but, right. but it also means that I am under my parents, right? I'm not over them. And so you see, with Jesus... Um, He's first born among all creation, among everything that was made in the heavens and on earth. He is superior to it. He's above it. He's over it, right? 
But he's not over the Father. And it implies that there is this distinction in persons, right? That Jesus is God, but he is not the Father. Right? And Paul's already talked about this in Colossians 1.3. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Right? So at the very beginning of his letter, Paul lays out this distinction between God the Father and God the Son. But then again in Colossians 1.13, he says, he that is God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Right? So it's an important distinction, and again, it's, it's one that's hard to wrap our brains around, that, that there's one God, but he exists in, in as, as, a, as we know now, three distinct persons. And, and God the Son is not God the Father. God the Father is not God the Son, but both are the one true God. Right? Um, again, we may not be able to fully grasp how this works, we may not be able to wrap our minds around it. But we need to plunge ever deeper into this understanding. right? And we need to understand it correctly. Uh, and, and where it oftentimes goes wrong is we get the idea that, well, God the Father was who he was in heaven, but then when he left heaven, he came down to earth and he became God the Son. Right? And, and that it's really the same one, he just put on a different hat. right? He just put on a different costume. But Scripture is very clear that there are two separate, distinct persons. And that's important because it means that they had a relationship. God is a relational God. Uh, and, and before he created anything, he was in relationship within himself. Right? Uh, you take gods of any other religion, take Islam, the God of Islam, Allah is a lonely guy. And he's all alone. And he is not a relational God. Because he's by himself, right? Uh, but the God of the Bible is not like that. He's a God of relationship. He's a God who has love within himself because the Father loved the Son and the Son loved the Father from before anything was made. Right? And he invites us into that circle of relationship. Amazing. Amazing. But that's later. We'll get to that in a minute. So he's the firstborn of, of creation, and it says everything was created by him. Um, he's the agent of creation. So it says in verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Uh, he is the one who made everything. Uh, the physical universe, which you know science is, is trying to get to the end of with their telescopes and and equipment, and we can't, we cannot get to the end of the universe, right? Uh, we still haven't got to the outer edges where we, where it's like, well, the universe ends here, and then there's nothing, right? We can't get there. And, and Jesus created it all. Um, this, needs, this ought to help us have the highest possible view of Jesus, right? Not only that, but when you do get to the end of the universe, if man ever gets there, uh, what's beyond it is the not universe, right? The, the invisible. And actually, it's probably very likely that the invisible and the visible both exist all together, right? Probably the indivisible is just right here. We can touch it, right? At the same time, it's just invisible to us. It's not material. It's spirit. And, and Jesus created that as well. And it's described in terms of 
thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. Power structures. And we don't know what the other... Paul doesn't explain these. Nowhere in Scripture do we have a real clear picture of what this is. But out there in the, in the spirit realm, there are powers. We do know from Scripture that some of those powers are good and some are evil. Some are, are with God and some are against Him. But they're all the creation of Jesus. Right? They're all what He has made. Um, he is its creator. Um, and, and it's important to realize that since He made everything... When it says that he created all things, it means that he had to create everything from nothing. Right? I like making furniture. I do not make furniture from nothing. Right? Uh, I actually make furniture from stuff that already exists. And I'm not really creating anything new. I'm just rearranging the parts to make it have a different shape and a different look. Right? Um, but Jesus created from nothing. Again, I try to put my brain around this. It just I, I, smoke starts coming out my ears, right? How did he do that? How did he create an entire universe from absolutely nothing? Well, the Bible says he just spoke it into being, right? How does that work? How 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 long? Like, where's the blueprints? You know, like, like, did he spend millions and millions of years writing all the blue? How did this work? I don't know, right? But that's who Jesus is. Right? He is infinitely wise. Right? And he spoke the universe and the non-universe into creation. But not only did he create it by himself from nothing, uh, without help, without, you know, without YouTube videos, amazingly enough, uh, he just made it out of his own mind, out of his own heart, by his own power, but, but in addition to that, it says that everything was actually created for him. Right? All things were created through him and for him. And this tells us that Jesus created things not, not randomly or chaotically or just on a whim, but he created things for an intended purpose and with a design. But there's a reason for its creation. It was created for him. And ultimately, it's created for his own delight and pleasure and joy and for the delight and pleasure and joy of God, to bring glory to him. Um, you know, again, I, I like to build furniture, and uh, uh, I, I mostly make things for other people. But the reality is, even when I make stuff for other people to use and I give it away, uh, I really make it for myself. There's a selfishness in, in, in it, right? Because if, if I didn't make it for myself, I would just say, well, it's a lot easier for you just to go buy it at Big C, because it would be, Right? Uh, but, you know, you invest something when you create it. There's something about your very being that goes into something you create. I remember one time I made this table for somebody, and uh, in the process of, they were helping me load it in the truck, and they got dropped, and it got all scratched up, and uh, partly because the guy who was helping me, his son was helping, and he dropped it. And uh, I think the dad kind of felt bad, so he said, oh, it's no big deal, it doesn't really matter to us. I was like, yeah, but it matters to me, right? You have no idea how much time I spent sanding and painting and standing and working, right? My, my blood and sweat and labor is in that, right? It does matter to me. And I wasn't angry, but I wasn't going to let him take it without fixing it. I said, no, I'm sorry. You can't take it scratched, right? I've got to fix it, right? Because why? Because I was really making it in many sense for myself, right? For the joy I got out of it. 
Well, if that can be true for me and a table, imagine what it means for Jesus, for God, in creating the universe, right? And in creating it for his own delight and pleasure, right? He delights in it. And, and it, it bothers God deeply that it's messed up. Right? He cares about his creation, not just the church, not just you and I as his children, but of all the universe and all the creation. Uh, he cares deeply about it. And all of creation is designed with a purpose and plan for him and for his glory. Right? Um, and this is really the only way to rightly understand the world we live in. And unfortunately, science wants to tell us that the universe is eternal, that atoms and molecules have obviously always been here because they couldn't just come from nowhere, right? And so that they've always been here, even though when they plunged back to the beginning point, they can't see, they can't see, and every scientist who's uh, honest will tell you that they can't see past a certain point. It's, it's, they're blind to the beginning. They can't penetrate its depths. But they assume that it must be eternal and, uh, and has been here forever. And not only that, but that all these atoms and molecules accidentally crashed into each other, making stars and planets, and eventually a bunch of amino acids formed, and they uh, magically arranged themselves into proteins, which then laid themselves out in perfect order as DNA and RNA, and poof, here we are. Right? We are just a cosmic accident. There is no design. There is no plan. There is no purpose. You're just a freak accident of molecules randomly arranging themselves in the perfect order to end up with you. Right? Uh, and, and people believe this. Like, and if you're one of these people who believe this, I pray for you. Right? Because it just makes no sense. Right? And even scientists, if they're honest, uh, bump up against this. Uh, uh, one guy, Francis Crick, writes in his book, What what mad pursuit. He says, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see is not designed, but rather evolved. Right? And the reason they have to remind themselves of that is because all the evidence says the exact opposite. It says that it is designed by an intelligent creator. Right? And that's the only way our universe makes sense. It's the only way we make sense. Right? Uh, we are we are designed. There is an extremely intelligent, all-wise, and all-powerful being who created the universe, and he created it, created it with clear design, purpose, and plan. Right? Uh, it, it, it's, it's intelligent, right? How did intelligent life come out of something that has zero intelligence? In fact, the incapacity, the inability for intelligence. But it just makes no sense, right? But people who will not believe God grasp to that because they have nothing else to, to believe. Uh, so it's also important when we think about this, when we realize that the world, the universe, everything that was created was ultimately created for Christ and for God, God's glory, that you and I are not, believe it or not, we are not the center of the universe. Right? You... I'm sad to say, are not the center of the world, right? Uh, the world was not created ultimately for you, right? It was created for God and his glory. That is, God bless you and share with you in his purpose and plan. Are you included in his great, great design for the universe? Absolutely. 
But ultimately, it is not about you and me. It is about God and Christ and his glory. Right? Uh, so our lives ultimately fit into his purpose. We cannot squeeze God into our plan and our purpose. Uh, finally, it says that he, he is before all things and sustains all things. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. He existed before there was anything uh, and he created everything. Uh, and when he created it, he didn't just launch it and let it go. He didn't walk away. Right? He is actively, Jesus to this minute, to this very second, is actively hands-on in running and holding and managing the universe and f- seeing that it moves forward to fulfill his purpose and design. Right? Like a gardener who plants a garden and, and uh, goes through all the work and labor of getting it ready and planting the seed. He doesn't just walk away and let it go to weeds. Right? A good gardener is diligent, hands-on, caring for what he's planted. The same way Jesus is a hands-on agent in the universe, uh, literally holding it together, uh, giving it purpose, and making sure it's going uh, by his sovereign hand uh, toward his final plan and destination. Uh, so that's who Jesus is in relation to uh, the created universe and the created heavens. Right? Um, we, we need to wrestle with that one because it should, it, should, it should put Jesus in a much higher place in our thinking than the carpenter in, in, in Galilee. Right? Now, he was the carpenter in Galilee who, yes, built tables and, and, and doors. I don't know, whatever he built as a carpenter. But he is also the creator of the heavens and earth who sustains everything through all time and history and brings it to his final conclusion and purpose. Lastly, though, uh, who is Jesus in relation to the church? Verse 18, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, so, so Jesus is, says he's the firstborn from the dead. Um, and this introduces something that Paul does not talk about, but that is implied. Uh, this good creation that, that he made, he made it for his good purpose. He is Lord over it. He is... Um, actively holding it together. And yet, there's something wrong, right? Something broken. There is death, right? He is firstborn from the dead. Why did he die? Why is there death in what he created good and perfect? Well, it doesn't talk about this here. He talks about it later. But the, the reality is that the, the universe he created for his good purpose was wrecked by sin and rebellion. Not apart from his plan, though, right? Uh, he could have prevented it, but he allowed it according to his plan because it is for his good purpose. He created it for himself. And even, even when sin entered, it was not apart from his plan, but we see it was, it was, it was his plan. It was his plan. Um, 
And it was his plan, ultimately, as we will see, that he would make peace. He would reconcile it through his own blood. Uh, so we see that he is the head of the body, the church. Right? Firstborn from the dead, he is the head of the body, the church. Um, the church are the redeemed people of God. Those who have been, as he said in verse 14, delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Uh, all that, as we will see, through his blood, through the work of the cross. Um, but it, it, I want to note first that it says he's the head of the body. And that tells us a couple important things. First of all, we all together, as, as, as followers of Christ, are the church, and we are the body of Christ. Uh, and, and Jesus is described as head. Now, kind of like the term firstborn, uh, it's, a, it's a word that has meaning, and that I think Paul chose deliberately. What does it mean for Jesus to be the head of the church? Well, for one, it means that he's the leader. Uh, he's the brains. Right? He's the brains of this organization. Uh, he's the one who has ideas and thoughts and a will and a plan about it. Right? He's head over it. So uh, some days you may wake up and you may forget to turn your brain on. Right? Uh, but not really. Right? The whole of your body operates and works only when your brain is working. Right? Only when your brain is giving instructions and leading and directing. And so there's a very real sense in that, in that our body follows our head. There's just no other way to do it. Right? Uh, somebody will say, well, yeah, what about when the doctor does that funny thing with your leg and it makes you kick? Right? Okay, well, there are minor exceptions. Right? Uh, but in general, your body follows your brain. And that's the picture. We, as the body of Christ, follow Jesus. He's the head and the leader. Uh, but, but Paul does not use the term commander-in-chief or the general or the dictator. He uses the head. And the reason is that uh, our head is also intimately connected to us. Right? It's not outside of us. It's not something beyond us. It's intimately connected. And in the same way, Jesus is intimately connected to his body. He is not leading as one detached from it. But we are together with Christ, his body. Uh, he is one with us and we are one with him. Um, and he is firstborn from the dead. Uh, the idea here is that uh, he's tasted and experienced something that all of us will eventually taste, namely resurrection, namely overcoming and conquering death. And of course we know Jesus rose from the dead and in so uh, he conquered this, the curse of sin and the curse of death. Right? He lives eternally. And when we put our faith in Christ, we too live eternally. And that resurrection, eternal life is already ours now in Christ. But it also looks forward to the day when our bodies will be resurrected. Um, oh, how I wait for that day. Every morning I wake up stiffer and sorer and I'm getting older and my body is wearing out. I, I look forward to the day when I get a new body. Amen? Any of, you, any of you looking for that day? So if you're not, it's because you're way too young, right? And you, and you don't know yet how this goes, right? All right, well, how does he accomplish all this? Well, the good news, final news, the last word. And through him, that is God, through Jesus, is reconciling to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The ultimate amazing news in all this is that this is possible 
Because the most supreme, high, eternal God who existed before all things, who made all things, and for whom all things exist, according to his great design and purpose in making the universe and the thrones and dominions and powers in the invisible realm, uh, he came to this earth and took on human flesh for the purpose of dying on the cross to reconcile not only us, but all creation to himself. To restore all of creation, all the universe, all that was made, to right relationship with God, to make peace through the blood of his cross, so that all things, not just the church, not just Christians, but all things might be reconciled to God. Right? To be returned to the original design and purpose for which he made it. And this doesn't mean that, that he will save everyone. Right? Um, it doesn't mean that, that all will be uh, rescued. But it means that his purpose and design for all of creation will be restored. That those who love Jesus will be with him and those who reject him will be silenced. And in the end, every knee will bow. Uh, There will no longer be enemies who are hostile against him. There will only be enemies who are defeated and who are conquered. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, so that in all this, it says, he might be preeminent. What is God's, it says all creation was made for him. What is the ultimate purpose? The ultimate purpose is that Jesus would be preeminent in everything. What does the word, what does preeminent mean? Well, it means to be the first or highest. Uh, It means surpassing all others. And I know this is a lot. It's a lot of theology. It's a lot of torturing your brain. Uh, you're all going to hate me because you're going to go home with a headache, right? And, and I know this is hard. I know this is not, like, like we like to go to church and we like it when the pastor talks about me. Right? And I'm sorry, today I didn't talk about you, right? I talked about Jesus. But, but here's, the, here's the, the, the reality where it comes down to where we live, right? If we don't have this view of Jesus as surpassing all others, right? If we don't have this view of the surpassing greatness of Christ above everything, uh, then our, our whole world and our whole understanding of life is going gonna, is gonna to get shipwrecked, right? We're going to be captured by fear and worry and doubt and discouragement, right? If we think, if we think this is all about me and it's not working out the way I want it to, We're going to be angry at God that he's not giving me what I want. And you see, it's because we don't understand rightly what it's all about, right? And and so Paul gives this hymn to the Colossians because he knows for them they're in danger of letting Jesus become too little. They're in danger of the high and exalted Jesus kind of slipping down to where he becomes kind of Average and ordinary, right? And and when we get to that place where Jesus is not everything, where he is not preeminent, where he is not surpassing all others in our thoughts and our minds and our affections, uh, 
We are on the wrong road, right? And, you know, we can make even, we can, we can even make the cross idolatry because we make our salvation all about me, right? Um, Jonathan Edwards talks about truly spiritual things are the things that we value because they are true in God, not because they have any benefit for me. And yet, how much of our Christian life have we turned into being all about me? My salvation is all about what God did for me. But ultimately, he did not do it for you. He did it for his own glory. He did it so that he would be supreme and surpassing everything else. Now, he loves you, right? He loves us. He laid down his life for us, right? But it is not because you and I are the center of the universe, It is because we were created for a much greater and grander plan and design and purpose. Our life is pretty small. And if it's all about us, it makes God's purpose pretty small. But when our little life can be joined and attached to the grand design and purpose of God throughout all history, that puts us at a whole other level, right? Uh, We don't want to bring God down to our level. He wants to bring us up to his and include us in his grand design and purpose. And that's exactly what he does. And he does that through the blood of Jesus. So let's uh, summarize this in in a couple ways, right? Uh, Our understanding of Jesus will be uh, elevated and will be right first when we see him as the one who created everything, right? And, and there's a lot there, right? Dig into that. What does it mean that he is the creator of everything? Right? Ponder those things. Secondly, when we understand that Jesus is, is the firstborn of all creation, uh, he was eternal God who became man, born of a virgin, walked on this earth in real time, so that he possesses the nature of God fully, but the nature of man fully. Right? He is the incarnate Son of God. And we need to wrap our heads around that. Thirdly, that we have a vision of Jesus as the head of the church who made peace with God through the blood of the cross. Um, He gave up his life on the cross to redeem you and I, but not only just you and I, but all of creation according to his great plan. So that in the end, we might behold his surpassing greatness for all eternity. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.